to many of us, the idea that international law has rules about how wars are to be fought seems faintly absurd. It certainly seemed absurd to the great Roman lawyer Cicero more than 2,000 years ago. He famously commented that inter armes silent leges, amidst the clash of arms, the laws are silent. And one might think that he knew all about that because he was murdered in the civil war that uh, took place in Rome a few years after he'd made that remark. But in fact, international law has had rules about different aspects of warfare going back many, many hundreds of years. Some of them dealt with the mundane matters that you have to regulate even in times of war. For example, the use of a flag of truce, um, exchanges of ambassadors in negotiations. But increasingly, the law came to regulate much more detailed and more important matters. In particular, a body of law grew up starting in the 16th century that regulated warfare at sea. And many hundreds of years ago, there were bodies called prize courts, which administered that law. National courts, which quite clearly applied, at least in part, rules of public international law. And then more recently still, there grew up rules designed to try and preserve some element of humanity, even in the midst of the most terrible warfare. Now, it's that body of rules I want to look at today. And I promise you it will be very much on an introductory basis. If you take all of the provisions in the four Geneva Conventions and the other treaties on the laws of war, uh, they add up to something like a thousand different provisions. I'm not going to try and go through each and every one of them in a lecture that will last only 45 minutes. What I want to do today is just to look at the broad principles of what today we call international humanitarian law. I want to look at where they started, what they try to regulate, and finally to say a little bit about how effective they are. Now although some of these rules can be traced back over many hundreds of years, there are two critical developments, both taking place roughly 150 years ago in different parts of the world. The first takes place in Europe. During the war between France and the various Italian states on the one side and the Emperor of Austria on the other, at the Battle of Solferino, a Swiss businessman called Henri Dunant, who happened to be in the area when the fighting took place, was horrified that after the battle was over, nothing was done to protect the wounded, thousands of whom were left lying on the battlefield, very often uh, in great pain and sometimes being murdered and robbed by passers-by. Dunant, who was a wealthy man, used his own resources to hire teams of local people to try and gather up the wounded and bring them into rudimentary field hospitals. And he was so moved by what he saw that he created what has become the International Committee of the Red Cross. And he was, the, in that sense, the father of the Geneva Conventions of today, which start with this idea of protection of the wounded on the battlefield. A couple of years later, a German international lawyer called Francis Lieber, who by this stage was living in the United States, he had incidentally as a boy of 15 taken, place, taken part in the Battle of Waterloo which ended Napoleon's reign in France. But Lieber was working in the 1860s for the United States government during the Civil War in the USA. And at the request of the Union government, 
he produced what was known as General Order 100, a code of the laws of war for the Union armies in the field. It's a very short document, far shorter than the text that we rely on today, but it tried to be a comprehensive statement of what soldiers may and may not legally do in battle. And it was enormously influential. Now, those two developments in the 18, late 1850s, early 1860s led to some very important changes in international law. Lieber's Code of 1863 was the nucleus of what became the Hague Regulations on the Laws and Customs of War on Land, adopted at the Hague Peace Conference in 1899, and then in a revised edition, which is the one that we look at today, at the Second Hague Peace Conference in 1907. Dunant's initiative led, as I said, to the foundation of the International Committee of the Red Cross, to the adoption of the first Geneva Convention, which created for the first time a body of rules designed to give immunity from attack to medical personnel on the battlefield. And that Geneva Convention was then adapted into a second convention for the wounded, sick and shipwrecked at sea, and eventually two further conventions, one on prisoners of war and one on the protection of civilians in armed conflict. Now, those two different strands in the law developed separately. Lieber was writing for soldiers from the standpoint of a soldier. He was writing about what soldiers were allowed to do, what they were not allowed to do, what powers a military administrator in occupied territory had. Dunant wasn't interested in that. He was writing from the point of view of the victim, and his concern was the protection of certain basic humanitarian standards for victims. But the two traditions came together in the 20th century, and now it's artificial to think of them as separate. And together they form the body sometimes called the laws of war or the laws of armed conflict, but more commonly today referred to as international humanitarian law. And those are the rules I want to look at on an introductory basis today. Now first of all, a few distinctive features of this body of law. The first is that it's a, something of an intellectual oddity. After all, international law prohibits states from committing aggression. It doesn't prohibit the use of force completely. If you've looked at my, one of my other lectures on the right of self-defense, you'll see that there are circumstances when it's lawful for a state to use force to protect itself, to protect an ally, or, for example, if it's authorized to do so by a resolution of the Security Council of the United Nations adopted under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter. But I think it's fair to say today that if there is fighting between two or more states, it means that one of them, at least, has violated international law in resorting to force. So that's the first distinctive feature of international humanitarian law. It is the only body of international law which only comes into operation when there has been a violation of other principles of international law and principles which are, of course, of fundamental importance. Now, that's a very big difference since the time of Lieber and Dunant. They were working at a time when international law recognized that states had a right to go to war as a means of asserting their political interests or resolving their differences. Today, international law doesn't accept that. 
So why do we need international humanitarian law? Well, it's not too difficult to see. We may have prohibited the use of force for aggressive purposes since 1945, but there's been no shortage of wars since that date. A more difficult question, though, is should the law apply to both the aggressor and the victim of aggression? After all, as Lieber's Code made clear, and the successor treaties also make clear, a belligerent state has certain rights under international humanitarian law. Why should you have those rights if your resort to war was aggressive and unlawful? After all, there's a general principle of international law, perhaps a general principle of law as a whole, that says that out of an illegal act, you cannot derive a legal right. You can't get a right out of your own illegality. Cicero would have referred to it as ex inuria non auditor ius. And that was an argument put forward by a very brilliant prosecutor at one of the trials that followed on from the main Nuremberg trial at the end of the Second World War. He argued that since Germany had been the aggressor in invading Yugoslavia and Greece, Germany was not entitled to any of the benefits of international humanitarian law in its occupation. But that argument was rejected by the military tribunal that tried the German generals on trial for war crimes in the Balkans. That tribunal took the view that humanitarian law had to apply equally to both parties in a conflict. And their view was upheld in a much more recent statement at the beginning of the 1977 additional protocols to the Geneva Conventions. The preamble to the first additional protocol, a treaty I'll come back to in a moment, makes clear that the rules contained in that protocol and in the Geneva Conventions apply to all parties to a conflict, irrespective of who was at fault in starting that conflict. And again, it's not too difficult to see that even if it might at first sight appear illogical, that principle is actually indispensable. Because if you made the application of the rules on protection of prisoners of war or the treatment of the wounded dependent on first establishing who was responsible for starting the conflict, the likelihood is that those rules would never be applied at all. Quite apart from which, the fact that a soldier who was badly wounded is serving in an army which is guilty of aggression should not surely deprive that soldier of the right to medical treatment or the prisoner of war to the right to be treated humanely while in captivity. So today, the principle we start from is the principle of equal application. Now, as we'll see, that can be particularly difficult when you deal with non-international conflicts, conflicts taking place within a state. And I'll try and come back to that at a later point in the lecture. The second distinctive feature of this body of law that I'd like to mention is its application to the individual. Now, if you look at most of the traditional histories of international law, they suggest that international law, in its origins at least, is an interstate system. It confers rights on states, it recognizes rights in states, and it imposes obligations on states. And the application of the law directly to the individual is considered to be a very modern feature something which developed in the post-Second World War period 
with the evolution of the law of human rights. But in fact, humanitarian law has always been different in this respect. If you go back even two or three hundred years before the time of Dunant and Lieber, perhaps even longer than that, you see the idea that international humanitarian law imposed obligations on individuals. Because the idea of war crimes prosecutions of the individual who has murdered a prisoner, for example, is accepted in international law, even if it's not very often applied, several hundred years before the Nuremberg trial. Similarly, you can get the first inkling of the idea of the individual being able to bring proceedings to assert a right in international humanitarian law many centuries before Nuremberg. And today, the principle is quite clear. Humanitarian law does indeed confer rights and impose obligations upon states, but much more important are the rights and obligations that it uh, imposes upon individuals. So, for example, the Prisoner of War Convention of 1949, perhaps the best known of the Geneva Conventions, makes it clear that the rights conferred upon prisoners of war are the rights of those individual prisoners, and they may not be renounced by an agreement concluded by the state to which those prisoners of war owe allegiance. If you're a prisoner of war serving in the army of a state, that state cannot lawfully waive your rights to treatment under the Prisoner of War Convention. Similarly, the idea that international humanitarian law imposes obligations upon the individual is now very clearly established. The Nuremberg trial in 1945-47 to is perhaps the best known of its kind, where the leadership of the German armed forces and the German political state stood trial for war crimes, violations of humanitarian law, crimes against humanity, and crimes against the peace, what today we would call aggression. Now that was not immediately taken up and followed by any subsequent trials once the Second World War trials had come to an end. But it is picked up again in the mid-1990s when the Security Council created the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and then a year later the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. And they in turn paved the way a few years later still for the adoption of the Rome Statute creating the International Criminal Court. Now all three of those bodies have a jurisdiction that includes trial of individuals for war crimes, violations of international humanitarian law. It would require another lecture to talk about the details of how international criminal law works, but an important part of it is rooted in the law that regulates the conduct of hostilities in warfare. So those are the two distinctive features of the humanitarian law that I wanted to mention. Now let me say a little bit about the sources of the modern law. Most of it is written down in treaty form, and the main treaties are the four Geneva Conventions of 1949. There had, by the way, been an earlier collection of treaties of 1929 that were in force in World War II, and earlier treaties still dealing with matters like the wounded and sick and shipwrecked that applied in the First World War and some of the earlier conflicts. But in 1949, after the terrible experience of World War II, the International Committee of the Red Cross convened a conference that completely revised the Geneva texts. 
enhanced the protection for the wounded, sick and prisoners of war, and adopted a new treaty, the Fourth Convention, that protects the rights of civilians. Not, I have to say, all civilians. It protects civilians who are interned, who are in detention, and the civilian population in occupied territory. But that was where some of the worst abuses of World War II had taken place. Now, those four Geneva Conventions have effectively universal participation today, 195 parties to all four treaties. They were supplemented in 1977 by two additional protocols. Protocol 1, which deals with conflicts between states, and Protocol 2, dealing with conflicts taking place within the territory of a state party, civil war, as we would call it. Those two treaties have very large uh, numbers of parties, 173 for the first protocol, 167 for the second. But they don't have the universal participation that you find in the case of the Geneva Conventions. And some of the provisions that they contain remain very controversial and are not accepted by a minority of states. In addition to those six main treaties, you have a series of specialised agreements. For example, uh, the Convention on Chemical Weapons, a convention dealing with um, weapons likely to cause unnecessary suffering or having indiscriminate effects, which contains a series of protocols banning particular weapons and particular uses of certain weapons, certain flammable weapons, for example, laser weapons used on the battlefield to blind people, weapons that injure with fragments that cannot be detected by X-rays. And of course you also have customary international law, which is easy to neglect in this field, but remains very important. Most of the laws of war at sea are still customary law rather than treaty-based. And I may say also quite difficult to apply in the conditions of modern naval warfare. The Hague Regulations of 1907, although a treaty text, are binding on only a fairly small number of states, but they are almost universally accepted as an authoritative statement of customary international law. And they are particularly important in relation to occupied territory if you look at the debates, for example, about whether a state in belligerent occupation of territory is entitled to confiscate property, entitled to demolish a house because it's been used um, for an attack upon the occupation forces, or to take possession of means of transport, you're forced back to the Hague Regulations of 1907 and the practice interpreting them during the First and Second World Wars. Those are the main sources of humanitarian law today. One other introductory comment I should make is that there's an important distinction between international and non-international armed conflicts. Now here we can dispose quite quickly of, of one um, old red herring and that is that today it's no longer necessary to look at whether there is a formal state of war or not. States very rarely declare war today. I've come across only one instance of a proper declaration of war since 1945. Instead, international law applies to armed conflicts. The test is the fact of fighting, rather than whether there has been a formal declaration or not. And originally, this body of law was designed for conflicts between states, international armed conflicts. Gradually, 
bits of it have come to be applied to conflicts taking place within a state, civil wars. And indeed, in many textbooks today, you'll find the suggestion that the two bodies of law have almost completely merged. I have to say I think that's oversimplistic. It's true that the body of law that applies to non-international armed conflicts is much greater than it used to be, partly as a result of the case law of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, beginning with its landmark judgment in the Tadic case in 1995, where the tribunal decided that somebody who commits a violation of the humanitarian law applicable in a non-international armed conflict is guilty of a war crime and can be proceeded against for that violation. Something we now take for granted, it's clearly embodied in the ICC statute for instance, but it wasn't at all straightforward until the 1990s. But the law that applies to non-international armed conflicts is still more restricted than the body of law that applies to conflicts taking place between states. If you look at the Geneva Conventions of 1949, they apply by virtue of Article 2, which is the same text in all four treaties, only to conflicts between high contracting parties, between states that are parties to the Geneva Conventions. Additional Protocol 1 has the same application, though it adds certain types of what are called wars of national liberation, taking place between a people and a state. Those treaties are far more extensive in their provisions than the ones that apply to non-international armed conflicts. The treaty texts applicable to non-international armed conflicts are first of all Common Article 3 of the Four Geneva Conventions of 1949, a seminal text, but it's a single article which has to do the work in non-international armed conflicts that is done by some 350 plus provisions that deal with interstate conflicts. Additional Protocol 2 of 1977 on conflicts taking place within a state contains only a third of the number of articles that you find in Additional Protocol 1. So the treaty provisions are much more restricted. And in particular, you have a vital difference between the two in the sense that in an internal armed conflict, the government party considers that the law is on its side. The rebel party is always portrayed as being an unlawful actor. And that's probably the explanation for there not being a developed body of law on the treatment of prisoners of war in non-international armed conflicts. Now you get some exceptions in the American Civil War, for example, although it was an internal conflict within the United States, it was treated for most purposes as though it was international. But that is the exception rather than the rule. I don't want in any way to diminish the importance of the law of non-international armed conflicts as it has grown up since the Tadic case. But it is important to realize that working out whether you are dealing with one type of conflict or the other can have very important implications for the body of law that you apply. Now what are the main purposes of international humanitarian law? As its name suggests, the most important purpose is humanitarian. It's designed to preserve some element of humanity in warfare. 
In his brilliant history of this part of international law, the author Geoffrey Best called his book Humanity in Warfare. And he makes clear that the purpose is not to try and make war a gentle, civilised pastime. That would be impossible. It's to try and preserve, even in the midst of all the horrors of a conflict like World War I or World War II, some basic notions of humanity. That the wounded are not a target. That they, there is a positive obligation to collect them, to care for them, to provide medical treatment for them, irrespective of whether those wounded people are your enemies or your own service personnel. The same applies to shipwrecked people. That somebody who has bailed out of an aircraft that is in flames is not a target as they're parachuting down to earth. That prisoners of war must be treated in a humane fashion, not as slave labor, not as bargaining chips as part of the negotiations at the end of a conflict, and in particular, not for medical experiments of the kind that was such an, an appalling feature of the Second World War. That the civilian population in occupied territory has to be treated with basic humanity. That they are entitled to certain rights at the hands of the occupying power, rather than simply being at their mercy. Now, that's often portrayed as international humanitarian law trying to strike a balance between humanity on the one hand and military necessity on the other. I don't think that's quite the right way to look at it. It's true that sometimes you get a rule that is directly designed to strike a balance of precisely that kind. One of the rules on weaponry is a prohibition on weapons and methods of warfare that are likely to cause unnecessary suffering. Now look at that very carefully. Weapons or methods of warfare that are likely to cause unnecessary suffering. They might cause very great suffering, but it's if the suffering is unnecessary. That is what makes the weapon illegal. And that principle can be traced back to the middle of the 19th century and a rather strange treaty adopted at St. Petersburg in 1868, banning the use of inflammable or explosive bullets weighing less than 400 grams. And the reason for the 400 gram limit is that was bigger than anything that could be fired from a rifle at the time, but smaller than the smallest artillery shell. And the logic behind it was, you don't need an explosive bullet to kill or injure the person you're shooting at. So to use a weapon that unnecessarily exacerbates suffering or unnecessarily renders death inevitable is gratuitously cruel and illegal. On the other hand, to achieve the same effects with an artillery shell is in a different category because the artillery shell can be used to do things that an ordinary bullet cannot do. For example, to destroy um, a barracks, to destroy a fortification, or to dis disable a large number of people with a single round of ammunition. That's the balance between humanity and necessity that you see there. But not all of the rules are like that. Some of them are cast in absolute terms. For example, there is an absolute prohibition in the Geneva Prisoners of War Convention on killing prisoners of war. It doesn't make any difference that the prisoner is taken on a patrol by a small group of people operating behind enemy lines who have no facilities for holding a prisoner. 
They are not entitled to claim that necessity meant that they were allowed to cut the prisoner's throat or to put a bullet in the back of his head. The balance between humanity and necessity there is not reflected in the way the rule works. It's something that was weighed up by the states that concluded the treaty in deciding to adopt the rule in the first place. The rule is an absolute one. Similarly, medical experimentation on prisoners of war, um, ill treatment of prisoners of war generally, cannot be justified by arguments of military necessity. Now this can produce really serious dilemmas that it's very difficult uh, to resolve. Take, for example, how you deal with the situation of the irregular combatant, the guerrilla fighter. The term guerrilla comes from a Spanish word for the small war, and it was first used to characterize the resistance men who fought against Napoleon's army in occupied Spain and Portugal during the um, early part of the 19th century. Now, one of the difficulties here is that, temperamentally, I think, most of us would wish to see rules that would protect against ill-treatment people who take up arms for patriotic reasons, but who maybe do not operate in uniform because it's simply too dangerous for them to do so. But the difficulty is that if you allow them to have the status of lawful combatants with all the protection that goes with that, there is a risk that you also endanger people who are genuine civilians, who are taking no part in the conflict at all. If soldiers in an occupying army are used to being shot at by people who, to all intents and purposes, are just ordinary farmers, a pregnant woman on her way to a hospital, then the likelihood is they would be more willing to shoot first and ask questions afterwards of people who really are farmers or pregnant women on their way to a hospital. So in this area, the law has had to strike a very difficult balance between, if you like, two competing humanitarian considerations, as well as two competing considerations of military necessity. For the state trying to resist the occupation of its territory, you need to be able to use irregular tactics, guerrilla fighting. For the state that is the occupying power, you need to be able to tell who is a civilian and who is a combatant, and to do it relatively easily. And the balance between those two considerations has never been an easy one to strike. If you look at Additional Protocol 1, Article 44, you'll see that it draws the line much further over towards the protection of the guerrilla fighter than the 1949 conventions or the 1907 Hague regulations had done. That's one of the more controversial features of uh, the changes introduced in 1977. There can also be a very delicate balance between the rights of the state and the rights of the individual. Take the situation that has arisen several times about repatriation of prisoners of war at the end of a conflict. It's not very widely known that the last prisoners of war from the Second World War were not repatriated until the late 1950s, more than 10 years after the fighting in World War II had ceased. One of the reasons for that is they were often kept as bargaining chips to all intents and purposes for use as slave labor. And one of the priorities in 1949 was to ensure that that should not happen again. So the 1949 convention avoids the problem that prisoners of war might be held until a treaty of peace is concluded 
by saying that prisoners of war must be released and repatriated as soon as active hostilities have come to an end. Now that's an excellent innovation, but what if the prisoners of war do not wish to return home? They might, for example, fear persecution because they have been taken prisoner, or they might fear a new government that had come to power and that had little sympathy for those who'd served in the armed forces of the old government that it had just displaced. Now what are you looking at here? A right of the individual prisoner to be repatriated, or the right of the state to get its personnel back? Is the prisoner of war who declines to be repatriated renouncing a right? Or can you really speak meaningfully of a right of forcible repatriation at all? Again, that's a dilemma which international humanitarian law has often faced. It's also worth keeping in mind that some of the rules of humanitarian law, which may seem rather arcane and difficult to understand today, are simply the product of the history of their time. This is particularly the case with the rules on weapons and methods of warfare. The fact that there is a ban on, for example, laser weapons used to target the eyesight of individuals reflects not the fact that those weapons had been widely used, but that it was feared they were being developed, and there was enough of a consensus in the late 1990s to get together a ban on that type of weapon. The ban on anti-personnel landmines introduced by the Ottawa Convention is another example of a treaty which just happened to be something states were prepared to agree upon at that particular point in time. Many commentators ask, well, why have a ban on weapons like that when there's no specific treaty dealing with nuclear weapons? The answer is that there hasn't been the international consensus necessary to adopt a treaty on the use of nuclear weapons. The fact that you cannot get agreement on them doesn't mean that you cannot get agreement on other, less violent types of weaponry. And it's worth taking advantage of the agreements that there are and going ahead with them. Now, international humanitarian law is something of a specialised subject. Many of the people who work on it have served in the military or indeed are still serving in the military. But it's important not to lose sight of the fact that it operates in the context of international law as a whole. Now we've already seen that it has a rather difficult relationship with the international law on the use of force. But it's a relationship that although it may cause you a moment of reflection, shouldn't actually cause you any real difficulty in practice. The two bodies of law serve different purposes. The purpose of the law on the use of force is to try and prevent states from resorting to force. Humanitarian law is not about that. Humanitarian law kicks in only when force has already started to be used. And it's designed to pursue a quite different purpose of injecting this basic minimum level of humanity into warfare. But there are other bodies of law that interact with humanitarian law as well. In particular today, you should never lose sight of the fact that human rights law and international humanitarian law are often dealing with the same issues. That's particularly important when you look at the law applicable to conflicts taking place within a state. And the International Court of Justice, for example, has said on at least two occasions, in the Nuclear Weapons Advisory Opinion in 1996, and in the judgment in the armed activities case between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Uganda, that human rights law 
does not cease to apply simply because the state in question is involved in an armed conflict. So the two bodies of law often intersect. But humanitarian law is much the more detailed of the two. The right to life provision that you find in most human rights treaties deals in a single sentence with matters that are covered in great detail in the treaty and customary law on international humanitarian law. Moreover, human rights law is generally binding only upon the state. Now, in a non-international armed conflict, humanitarian law rules will bind both the rebel party and the government party. Or indeed, if there is no government party, it will bind the different factions that are fighting for the status of government. Human rights law, on the other hand, does not have that equality of application. Now, that doesn't make it unimportant or ineffective but it does make it different from humanitarian law and it requires a certain delicacy in applying the two bodies of law simultaneously in an armed conflict. A second point that is worth bearing in mind is that international criminal law intersects with international humanitarian law. Now that's often a much misunderstood area. The most important type of crime in international criminal law is still the war crime. War crimes incidentally fall into two different categories. There are grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions and Protocols, and there are other war crimes. Now that doesn't reflect a different level of importance. It reflects different rules on the enforcement of those two types of law, those two types of crime, that uh, are contained in the Geneva Conventions and their protocols. Grave breaches carry a machinery for mandatory universal jurisdiction. Other war crimes do not. There are also crimes against humanity, which take in areas that go beyond the scope of humanitarian law. There are crimes like genocide and aggression, which deal with quite different matters altogether. But at the heart of international criminal law, as the case law so far of the ICTY and the ICTR has shown, you find the concept of criminal violations of humanitarian law. Now, I said I'd finish by taking a brief look at what humanitarian law has achieved and what the prospects for it might be. One only has to look at a newspaper today to realise that humanitarian law is very far from having achieved the goals that it's set out to achieve. That basic minimum level of humanity is still all too often missing from the warfare we read about every day in our newspaper or see every day on television. But I think it would be a mistake to assume that just because there are so many cases where the law is violated, that therefore that law is wholly ineffective. There is plenty of evidence from a legion of conflicts that the Prisoner of War Convention, for example, has ensured that hundreds of thousands of people taken prisoner in armed conflict are better treated than they would otherwise have been. Just to take one very mundane example, the Prisoner of War Convention not only deals with if you like, the critical uh, issue of life and death, the preservation of the life of the prisoner, the preservation of the prisoner from inhuman treatment. But it also deals with more mundane matters, such as the ability of the prisoner to correspond with his or her family. Now imagine how important that issue is to somebody who is a prisoner of war for perhaps as long as seven or eight years, as has happened in many of the armed conflicts of the post-Second World War period. 
There's also evidence that somebody whose name and details are properly recorded as required by the Prisoner of War Convention and who's therefore on the list possessed by the International Committee of the Red Cross is much more likely to survive the conflict than somebody whose identity is never properly noted in that way. The protection of the wounded and sick and the protection of the medical personnel that treat them has improved dramatically since Dunant's time, partly as a result of the initiative he took at the Battle of Solferino, the work of the International Committee of the Red Cross and the provisions of the two Geneva Conventions on wounded and sick. You find that some of the most terrible weapons invented by man are now prohibited outright or at least are declining in their use as a result of initiatives taken in humanitarian law. And lastly, the effect of the last 20 years has been dramatically to increase the possibility that those who do commit atrocities in warfare will one day face justice for doing so. Now none of that is a reason for being complacent. It is a reason for thinking that humanitarian law has achieved much. It could still achieve a great deal more. Thank you very much.